0: So it is my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker for tonight, Dr. Mark Armitage. And so as you're coming on up here, I'll, I'll share a quick story. So a lot of us who creationists who travel around the country and speak on creation use his material when it comes to soft tissues and dinosaurs. And he's going to share a story tonight, which is which is really neat, what put, really puts you on the map on breaking open that triceratops horn and everything that transpired from there and how God has used all that um, for his glory. So... Yeah. So, on that, I turn it over to Dr. Mark Armitage. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you <clears throat> I apologize that i 'm losing my voice, <laughs> so i 'll do the best I can. but thank you so much for inviting us to come. Uh, you have the whole district uh, team here tonight, all four of us <laughs> uh, our president Keith is here, my wife Ruth is here, and our event coordinator Karen Mickelson is here also so if we die in a plane crash tonight, this thing ends. No, that that won't happen. But um, we really appreciate the opportunity. Um, tonight, you're going to hear a science presentation. And I think that's important. We're the folks that do the work. We're the folks that go out to the dig. Uh, we go to the world-famous dig sites around the world, uh, mostly the Hell Creek Formation, but we've dug in uh, Colorado and Utah, in Oklahoma, and other places. So... Um, I'm just going to present the pure science that we have published. So what you're going to see tonight is published work. It's published in Cambridge University Press, and now we're being published in Oxford University Press. And it's a huge praise to the Lord because he's opened a door for publishing that is astonishing to me personally. Um, I have a very long publishing career, and a lot of publications And it used to take forever to get a paper published, about a year and a half sometimes. The folks at the Microscopy Society of America publish everything we send them, and very quickly. So it's really astonishing, and it's exciting. It's changing science. We're advancing science, which I think is really important um, to do the work, to find out what's there, and to get it peer-reviewed. So here we go. Yeah, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, But I had really poofy hair back then, didn't I? See how poofy that is? Way up there. But um, I've had an amazing career. I tell people my windshield is cracked, broken, frosted. I can't see through it. I have to advance by trust in inches, along inches, and waiting, and waiting on the Lord. But my rear view is so clear. I can see every event that God orchestrated in my life to bring us here to this point where we are tonight. So it's it's fascinating that the training that I had was a highly skilled set of training, and my goal is to pass that on. They're not doing a lot of this training anymore, and so it's it's almost becoming a lost art. So we need volunteers. We need helpers. We're all volunteers, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But if you're interested in any way in pursuing this work, we really want to talk to you. Or if you can help drive our lab around the country, we Bring a, uh, a complete laboratory in uh, with 20 microscopes, advanced microscopes, and that's what we did yesterday. We did nine hours of teaching to 70 students who really were bouncing off the walls after they left. So it's really very exciting, and we would welcome your, your help, certainly your prayers. Um, when you think about dinosaurs, uh, really all we have left today are their bones. There are some examples of uh, well-preserved, mummified carcasses. Um, uh, but they're few and far between. Mostly what you find uh, are, are shards. Uh, it's almost as if they tumbled through a cement mixer uh, to be where they are today. And uh, you'll see a picture, I, hope, I think, in a second. I'm switching presentations a little bit tonight. But we literally s- sit in front of a wall of sand because they, they use a grater to make a wall. For us, And we sit there and, and pick away at it uh, with tools and literally claws and teeth fall out sometimes on your chest when you pull that sand towards you. So it's awesome. If you ever want to go on a dinosaur dig, how many, how many families do we have going to the dig this this summer in May? I think it's like six or seven different families with children are coming. So uh, we have quite a crew this year, but we try to go every year. So if you want to come... Uh, please let us know. But this is really what we have left to deal with. Um, If I were to take your femur, a long bone, out of your leg and just cross-section it, just cut it here, um, it would look like this. Now, it would be a completely round circle, right? So they just gave us a pie here to look at. But we see several structures in here. We see these laminar sheets. Uh, They're lines. They're almost like tree rings, and they run the periphery of compact bone. And then you have spongy bone inside such a bone as this. It varies by bone, but this is typically what you would see in a dinosaur bone and in your bone. Your bones are made exactly the same way, same design. Uh, And so along these lines, you see little dots. See all these little dots? Here they are in these circular lines. Uh, Those are the cells, the osteocytes that are responsible for actually building all the bone. Uh, it's a fascinating story. You can look up osteocytes and study. But these guys, they're finding now that they're, they not only control uh, the, the bone production, but they're also controlling the placement of vessels and veins and nerves. So they, they kind of orchestrate the whole package. Um, every, about every 15 years, your, your skeleton, they say in the literature, is completely refurbished. So these cells are active your whole life, and, and they find cracks and errors and voids in your bone. And they send out special cells to actually erase that. They erase that bone, and then other cells come in and rebuild it. But they find new canals to travel. And so uh, they direct the, the, the growth of vessels and veins and nerves, and that's the soft tissue that is still in the bones. It's still there. Most people are under the impression that dinosaur bones are rock. Some have turned to rock. They have permineralized. But that's very rare. Uh, About 90 to 95% of the bones we take out of the ground are still bone. And we can dissolve them in vinegar. And so we use uh, a solution that's not unlike vinegar. We use the same protocol that hospitals use. So if you were to get a bone biopsy... Uh, and they would send that to the lab. They follow a protocol to dissolve that bone and look at the soft tissues therein. in. We use the same protocol. So we haven't invent, reinvented the wheel here. We go to all the famous digs that the paleontologists go to. We don't reinvent that. And we're apparently finding the things that they're overlooking. Um, but that's where the soft tissues are. They're inside the bone, arteries, vessels, and veins. Sometimes there's other structures, including the cells. We find a lot of cells. Um, here they are shown larger as they travel around these lines of growth. And so it's, a, it's an architecture that you can, you can recognize under the microscope because it's just like we see in a pathology lab or in a biology lab. So it's really the same stuff. But that's what we go after. So we collect these specimens. Um, we have paleontologists at the site who identify them for us. If we cannot identify the bone at the site, uh, we don't photograph it and we don't publish on it. Literally every shard of bone that we find there yields soft tissue of one sort or another, including lipids. You know what lipids are, right? It's like pouring Wesson oil out on the ground and expecting it to be there in 68 million years. So it's astonishing what we're finding uh, but we we follow this decalcification process that's used by hospitals. So when you first put your shard of bone in there, it's pretty clear for a day or two, and then it starts to cloud because the bone is, is literally falling apart. It's pulling the calcium ions out of the bone, and that allows all the tissues to fall out. So <clears throat> after that's done that for a while, we use a dialysis tubing, which allows for osmotic washing. Because... This is a fluid, but we have to wash the fluid. <laughs> so you have to use another fluid to wash it. And so we put it in distilled water, but we make this little pouch first. We fill it with the uh, the decalcification material from the Petri dish, uh, and then we run it through a series of, um, of uh, distilled water over time to wash it. Then we can put it out on slides and make permanent slides. Um, and so... That's the process by which we dissolve the bones. And the paleontologists really don't like us because they treasure their bones. <laughs> and uh, I'm known as that guy who dissolved that Triceratops horn in Montana. Whenever I go there, they never fail to remind me. Um, but that's where the soft tissue is. So it's a destructive process. Um, and and so um, it, it's really interesting because... The digs that we go to are run by ranchers, who will, many of which are, are Christians and homeschoolers. And so uh, we like to support them because they're trying to pay, you know, to su- uh, support their families. So we we do haggling over bones and money. <laughs> and it's, it's really fun, though. And uh, the Lord always provides us with amazing specimens. Every time we go, um, we find something amazing. He just always shows up. Every time we come to a talk, every time we do a lap... The Lord shows up. So it's just so cool to watch him work. We also do scanning electron microscopy. And so that involves uh, dry, drying specimens way out, coating them with metal, and putting them in an electron microscope. And you'll see pictures uh, that we've used these microscopes for, for cells and things like that. But uh, in 2012, uh, I was employed at California State University in Northridge. I ran a multimillion-dollar laboratory at the top of the brand new Chaparral Hall, a $50 million building, and we had three electron microscopes, or I had, I ran this whole lab, it had seven suites in it, and I had students, I had undergraduate students, graduate students, and PhDs, they were my worst students, incidentally, it was always the undergraduates and graduates who did better, because the PhDs seemed to know so much I couldn't teach them, but anyway, uh, when I was in that lab, I got an invitation to go to a dig, and I took it, because my career has been in soft tissue processing. I was trained to process tissues for microscopy, all kinds of tissues. Uh, if a professor would come in and, 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 and they had a vial of tissue, I would process that for their research. I had a professor walk in with jellyfish eyes one day, and yes, I processed those. So I had a broad amount of experience on plant tissue, animal tissue, invertebrate, and vertebrate. And so when I started reading about what they were finding in Montana, I thought, this is not, that's impossible. I was trained to, to process on ice. I had buckets of ice on my uh, on my lab bench, and all my reagents had to be ice cold. So the tissue had to be cold, the reagents had to be cold. Why? Because membranes break down, structures break down, and we, we could see that. We could see the effects of not In other words, taking animal tissue and not processing it right away, away, waiting a few days, affected membranes. So we were taught that things had to be rapidly and quickly processed uh, at freezing in order to preserve the structure. So when I started seeing the pictures of what was published, and then I started looking into the literature, uh, many people don't realize that dinosaur soft tissue has been in the literature since the 60s. You've heard of Mary Schweitzer- I guess, right? Some of you. She was, uh, is a professor at uh, North Carolina State University, and she started working uh, in Montana uh, at the Museum of the Rockies and, and started going out, and they were collecting bones, and one of them got broken. She took shards back and uh, did this protocol in EDTA and was shocked. They repeated the experiment 20 or some times, you know, to really verify what they were finding. And so she's the one that really launched the modern resurgence of dinosaur soft tissue. But it's been known since the 60s. This was our first paper published in 2013. It was a 48-inch long triceratops horn that we collected in Montana. It was jammed into the dirt, point down, and uh, it was at a 45-degree angle. So undoubtedly rainwater, percolating water through the soil, uh, traveled through the vascular system, and so... All the blood vessels, all the sorry, all the vessel canals were permineralized. All the vessel canals, so the bone canals. if you remember this picture? These bone canals, which look like this, okay, um, they had all the soft tissue in them, and so, uh, but they were permineralized. So the the canals were hardened rock, and you're going to see that. But they had cells on the outside of them, and they had clots inside of them. We'll get to that in a second. But the point of this paper was that we found soft sheets of bone. A bone is made by these cells first as a collagen carpet. They make a carpet, and they lay down on that carpet, and then they cement themselves in with bone mineral. So they're literally living in the bone in little caves, but they have these little tentacles that reach out and touch each other, these filopodia. And so all the cells are touching each other with these little filopodia, these thread feet, because they're measuring compression in your bone in real time and correcting those defects that we talked about. So they make this fibrillar collagen sheet. They, they bring in the bone mineral. They cement themselves in, and that's how the bone is built up. But before it gets that mineral in placement, it's stretchy. And so I want to show you a film of what we pulled out of this horn. Uh, if you'd seen the movie, um, is Genesis history, you might remember this film. But um, I shot this film in my lab in Southern California in 2012. And I was astonished because this had cells in it. Um, and I so I was able to thin section this, cut a very thin section of it. And it, it showed the cells, and that made the cover of American Laboratory. But look at how stretchy that is. It's like a piece of taffy, and that's straight out of the bone. I didn't process that at all. Um, and so it made the cover of American Laboratory, and that, that really uh, uh, boosted my profile in the department. They were very excited, but they didn't understand it. <laughs> they didn't understand that it, it shows that it's young, because I cut this with a steel knife. I cut this on a cryostat, which is a frozen section machine, with a steel knife. And so they they congratulated me. Good job, Mark. That's what we want you to do in the department. And then we published the paper. And two weeks after I published the paper, they handed me my walking papers. So um, they finally understood the implications. And then they realized they couldn't abide it. They couldn't have me in the department. Uh, So we did did seek relief from the court. Um, It was a three-year-long case. They paid out over $2 million, uh, most of that to the lawyers, of course, and most of it to their lawyers because they were defending it for a long time. But the Lord gave us a victory, and we were able to launch from that and and, uh, launch the work. But this was the first paper published. Uh, It was based on this horn that was found in Montana. Um, The the photo was a little disarming because it was at a 40-degree, 45-degree angle into the soil. But here's the part where all the water was percolating down the horn. So all the vessels in the center of the horn permineralized and turned to rock, but everything else was still bone. So we were able to dissolve everything. Let me put it this way. Picture a slab, a concrete slab with plumbing in it. We were able to erase the slab and expose the plumbing. And so because that had all hardened into stone, But let's go through a few of the things that we discovered in this horn, which was severed away, sitting in the ground. For how long, class? I mean, that's the question we're trying to answer, aren't we? (laughs) How long has it been there? And uh, so I was shocked. In fact, we did a DNA blast analysis and found the DNA of 40 different organisms in this horn. Um, So, and you're going to see other things that we found in here that are even more astonishing. So... It's amazing that any of these things are still here with all the microorganisms that are in the ground that are designed to deconstruct this stuff, to recycle it, and yet we see this kind of preservation. So remember those circles I showed you with a hole in the center? Well, this is one of them. You can see the lines of growth around here. It's called an osteon or a Haversian system. And here's the canal, but look at all these little round Microstructures in there. What are those? Well, they're reminiscent of blood cells, aren't they? They're not blood cells. No one has ever published finding blood cells. So that's kind of a thing that people need to correct. But these are definitely clotted. And that's one of the things we found initially, and we found it over and over and over and over. We're going to talk about clots, they're very important. All I simply did was grab a piece of bone. I think this one was, yeah, this was a piece of horn. And all he did was fracture it. I just mechanically fractured it. And then what you have to do for electron microscopy, scanning electron microscopy, is you have to coat it with metal because it's an electrical circuit in the electron microscope. And if you don't close the circuit with metal, you get all this charging. The electrons don't know where to go, so your your image is cloudy. Um, But here you see another fractured piece. You see the bone canal, there it is, with the lines around it. And there's a vessel, a soft vessel, sticking out where I just fractured it in half. And you can see that part of it tore away when I ripped it apart like that. So this stuff is, we we called it selective permineralization because some of the horn was permineralized, but a lot of it was still bone and all these tissues were still intact in it, yeah? That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Here's the the pipes in the concrete that I told you about. So all the bone has been erased by decalcification. This is after decalcification. And these are all hardened rock. But you can see little dots on the surface here. Uh, I'll show you better pictures in a second. But you begin to see them here. And those are all the cells. The cells are on the outside of the vessel. They were still soft. And we were able to liberate them from this bone. Uh, But many of the canals were permineralized. So we called it selective permineralization. Here are some of the cells that were uh, exposed when we took that concrete away, that bone mineral. So by decal, we just stripped away the the bone mineral, and here's these cells lying underneath. Um, They come in different shapes. These are called oblate. These are called stellate. There are some that are almost triangular in their shape. And so we found all varieties of these. What's really amazing is that they look almost identical to your bone cells, particularly in size. They're almost the exact same size as your bone cells. Yet, we can have a behemoth, you know, with a 90-foot-long body, and, but yet their cells are the same size as ours are. So we got better at this, better at finding cells. Again, this was after decalcification, and better at re, um, uh, liberating them. Uh, I mentioned this cover, um, and I showed you that video of the stretching, but it was full of cells, and and that's a really important aspect. Um, even if you find stretchy stuff, uh, it may not be original tissue from the dinosaur. It could be fungal bodies or other things. There's worms. We're actually finding worms in here. So the trick is to section it and see what's inside, and that's what we've done on most of our... Uh, work, as we show that the cells are still present there, which is, to me is astonishing. I mean, when I worked with with cells I- at the university, and I've been at three universities, um, in order to retain the preservation of their structure, I, again, I had to put everything on ice right away, even after taking them out of an animal, right, right away out of an animal. And so, as I mentioned, I was able to make cryostat sections. Maybe you haven't heard of a cryostat, but when you go into the hospital, and or if you've gone through Mohs surgery, um, they take a biopsy, they they run it down to the lab while the patient is at the OR, and they freeze it pretty quickly, they thin-section it, they put it on a slide, stain it, it goes to the pathologist and, he, pathologist, and he will say, you need to cut a little more around this margin or that margin, or the patient's good. Um, and so... Cryo meaning frozen, stat meaning fast, it's a great machine to cut tissues right away. But to cut dinosaur tissue on a cryostat, (laughs) that was really something. So in any event, uh, this was our second paper in 2016. And uh, again, uh, uh, this was in the Microscopy Society of America. The previous paper was with Elsevier, um, which publishes many different journals. These guys have been publishing since about the 1400s, if you can believe that. They have a record that goes all the way back. And so there are many journals that they, print, that they publish. Uh, uh, but this is a, a journal of cells and tissues. So it was a perfect place for this article. Um, so we, we learn to liberate these cells, which means free them from the bone matrix entirely. Now they're floating in solution. But I want to point out some architecture here to you because uh, these are about 14 microns long. What does that mean, Dr. Mark? Well, if I take one of your hairs and I cut it into 100 slices, okay, each one would be one micron. So count out 14 slices of one of your hairs, and that's the length of this cell. They're very tiny. But all these little thread feet that I told you about, see them all still, in, still intact. They're 200 nanometers wide. What is that? Take one of those hair slices, one of the 100, divide that into a 1,000, count 200 of those. That's the width of that little structure. How can this be there? This should be powder if it's that old. I call these impossible pictures. And so we were invited to present at the Microscopy Society of America meeting we took our cell information with us and we presented there. Um, here's two cells that are still attached, liberated from the bone, but their little filopodia are still attached to each other because they communicate. Here's one that has a nucleus in it. <laughs> so it's just crazy. This, this, this can't be there. Um, by any process that I know, I can think of no process that would preserve this. Everything is against this. Autolysis, which is the innate uh, ability of cells to be broken down on their own. They deconstruct themselves. It's called programmed cell death. Um, that is a big factor. Hydrolysis, the presence of water anywhere near this would break it up. And, and these are a phospholipid membrane. That means it's a fat. And, and so that should be chewed up by any number of organisms uh, in the soil. So it's astonishing to me that these are here. Now, this is a really important picture because, as I mentioned, we cover them in metal before they go into the electron microscope. Well, they invented a new version that was a little lower vacuum. We run real high vacuum in a microscope, an electron microscope, kind of the vacuum that the space shuttle would ride in, same high vacuum. Here it was lower, and so we didn't have to coat it. So you're looking at the native naked cell. That is what the cell tissue actually looks like. And you can see all these little phytopodia diving down into the, to the bone. Um, and, and so the, the, the preservation of this just continually to this day. has been over a decade, and they still blow me away how well-preserved they are. All right. We also reasoned that there would be neurovascular bundles, and especially nerves, because they show an artery, vein and a nerve. Those travel together in your bone canal. So in your bones, you have vessels, veins, and nerves. You also have other things like the cells. But in the veins, there are little valves that control because veins are under lower blood pressure, right? It's returning to the heart. So there's valves built in there to keep the blood in place as the heart pumps it back. We've actually found those valves as well. We have found the cuspids on them. They're only one micron thick, You have heart cuspids. (laughs) And we've even stained them. They take up biological stains. Uh, They take up an RNA stain, which is astonishing to me. So this is crazy. But we realized, we, we reasoned that there would be nerves in there. We thought, nobody's talked about nerves. Let's go see what those are like. And so here's the paper that we published in 21. It's first report of peripheral nerves. So We made a world-first discovery. This wasn't the first one. We sat down and counted. We've got about 20 world-first discoveries in this area of work. But we were able to say, this is first report. That means we're the first people anywhere on earth to ever publish anything about this. That's really cool to be able to do that. So we collected an occipital condyle, which is softball-shaped bone uh, at the base of the triceratops skull. So it allows it to gimbal. Remember, it's a horizontal vertical uh, vertebral column. Ours are, are vertical. Theirs are horizontal. The head hangs off of that. So this is kind of an important bone that holds the head in place, right? So we collected this, and we did our study in the literature and found out what nerves look like, and I'll show you that in a second. But here's some veins that we found in there. Look at how delicate these beautiful veins are. I just don't understand how this can still be there in these preparations that have been sitting in the ground for how long, class? That's what we're trying to answer, isn't it? Uh, here are the vein valves I told you about. It's impossible to dissect these out of living veins. They're, they're so uh, built into the vein that you literally tear the vein apart to get them out. And so to see them laying on the bottom of our petri dish because they just fell out of solution is astonishing. But here it is stained darkly with toluidine blue. Here's that little cuspid I told you about. You see that flap laying there. That's one shave of that 100 shaves out of the hair, thick, really tiny. Here it is responding to acridine orange, which is an RNA stain. So it's reporting RNA. (laughs) So it's just amazing. So again, back to the nerves. We, We dug into the literature because we wanted to understand what the nerves look like. Nobody had published on dinosaur nerves before, so we had to consult the literature. And we found this wonderful drawing from Glees way back in 1943, and he used exactly the kind of microscopy that I'm used to using. And uh, so what we see is that these nerves are wrapped kind of like a coax cable. You older guys, you know what that is. It's got that rubber coating on it. So this has a coating uh, but it's, it's filled with lipids. It, it has a crosshatch pattern. It actually goes uh, in two ways around the nerves. And you see those two sides, the two, you know, the X factor in this. So it's a double wrapping. The outermost part is called perineurium. And then if you strip that away, you see other layers. But the axons, actually these are the fascicles. The axons are inside here. So the axons are the tiniest thread of electrical cable inside of this. They're wrapped up in these spaghetti-like strands called fascicles, and you can see them sticking out. But it's all insulated with this covering. Yeah? Everybody with me? All right. So uh, scientists that uh, study dinosaurs claim that they are uh, the antecedents to avians or birds. So, you know, when you're eating turkey, you're having a dinosaur, yeah? But... That's their program, and so we decide, okay, we're going to study avian sciatic nerve. So here's a, a chicken sciatic nerve. It, it's sitting in a stain right now, and it's starting to be stained. You can see some really black blackening and oxidizing of some of these. That's the arterial system that is attached to the outside of the nerve. It stains very blackly right away. Um, but the epineurium and perineurium are full of lipids, they don't stain so fast. It takes them a long time to be affected by the osmium. You can see the, the fascicles inside here are already turning brown, and they're going to turn black in a second when you see. And these pictures were separated by only about five minutes. So that's a cross-section of the nerve. You can see the outer cone, the layer of insulation, and this is the electrical stuff going into the board. Yeah. So if we strip away that outer layer, now you expose the perineurium. So when you look at these under a microscope, one layer is cross-hatched one way, and the outer layer is cross-hatched another way. But you can see all this with this special microscope. Look at the fascicles. Look at how dark they've gotten. Uh, And so these get really dark. If we strip this away, this layer of coating, now you have just the fascicles. And note that they're pleated. They have a pleated orientation. And that's significant because... That has an optical effect on the nerve. When you look at it under the microscope, you see these W's running down the nerve. They're called bands of Fontana. I had brain stem surgery in 2019, and I showed all these pictures to my uh, brain surgeon, and he said, yeah, you have found nerves after we found them. So here is a chicken nerve. This is from the bone. So this is a very tiny nerve filament that we extracted from the bone after decalcification, right? We melted it, dissolved it, and I cut a thin layer off of it. But you can see the edges of the outer coating. See that bright edge there and that bright edge there? Remember, I cut off the top of this. So that's the coating. But look at the crosshatch of the epineurium and perineurium. You can see it clearly along the nerve. Here's triceratops. So when we found this, um, I had made about 100 slides of this condyle. This prompted me to go back through all of those slides, and I found nerve fragments on all of them. Now that I could recognize them, I can go back, and they're, they're abundant, they're prevalent. And so we published this. Here's another picture of a nerve from the Triceratops condyle. You can see the crosshatch in it. And here are here's a fascicle. And so that's one of these spaghetti noodles that I showed you, right? But look at all the W's in there that's this pleating as the axons actually travel down the middle of the fascicle so we have confirmation after confirmation after confirmation that this is nerve tissue and they're beautiful the kids got to see these yesterday right you guys remember that from yesterday pretty cool isn't it and you found them pretty fast didn't you we actually melted some bones we made, we pipetted that out on slides they took them back to their microscopes found one found one <laughs> It's so much fun. We also found the wrapping. So here's the epineurium, perineurium that just fell away from those spaghetti noodles. So they separated, and you can see this crosshatch pattern here. This winding that goes around these. So again, confirmation after confirmation. I do a lot of thin sectioning. So I thin, thin sectioned a nerve, one of the dinosaur nerves, to see this internal structure. And you see these lines here, right? That's the wrapping lines, right? That wraps this uh, uh, insulator around the nerve, and here now we've sliced through that, and you can see these lines. So those are the wrappings, uh, markations of how they wrap. So as it wraps, it's got these lines in it, and and you see all this white. That's all lipids. So these are full of fat, full of lipids for insulation. Uh, the next slice exposed a fascicle. Remember the fascicle I just showed you? This one... Yeah, so here's one inside the nerve now with the outer lipid coating. So that's a great picture, and you can see the bands of Fontana, and down here there's one band left because I kept cutting. So we were very proud of this work. We submitted it, uh, and it was published quickly, and they gave us the journal cover. That's science saying, you did a good job here. Uh, And we're really proud of that. So we've got several covers now, which is really exciting. Um, Now, we had a challenge from a forensic scientist, because this is all forensics when you think about it. This is the study of dead bodies rotting in the ground. And that's what they do. They build body farms, and they put bodies out there in the ground, on the ground, and they watch them decompose. Um, And so we are really glad to be getting the attention of the forensic scientists, but one of them said, "Nah." You're just, you're just finding cellulose. These are plant fibers. These are just cellulose fibers. Challenge accepted. So we did a complete study of cellulose fibers, and they're markedly different because they do not show this crosshatch pattern that is highly diagnostic and characteristic of nerves. So we also examined nylon, cotton. Uh, we're looking at other fibers, and they really don't resemble them at all. They stand alone uh, as a diagnostic feature. So that's pretty exciting. We make thin sections of these bones. We, we cut sections out of the bone that are about half the width of one of your hair. So really, really thin, about 50, 40 microns. And we mount those on a slide. And then we can examine the bone under the microscope. And this is one such picture. Uh, this was published in 2020. And we invented a special type of microscopy. We actually started a new branch of microscopy uh, to do this examination. Uh, but We claim we're revealing encapsulation of blood clots. Um, We believe we found blood clots in most of the specimens uh, that we've examined. Nobody's talking about blood clots. Uh, In fact, uh, well, I'll I'll explain something else in in a minute. But this is that thin section of bone. Pardon me. And you can see the bone is kind of brown. But you you can make out the lines. You see the lines of the Haversian canals. You can see the lines of growth throughout the bone. And but it's kind of brown because it's they call it advanced glycation end products. The sugar, sugars in tissues tend to caramelize over time, much like you would put a toast, a piece of bread in a toaster and toast it. You do that fast. It turns brown fast, right? Here it's been in the how long in the ground class? Isn't that the question we're trying to answer? It's been in the ground a long time, obviously. I mean Anything over 500 years to have this preservation, to me, is astonishing. Thank you, brother. Thank you. He takes such good care of me. Our president, Keith. Ah, my wife takes such good care of me. So we can see the bone. It's all brown, yeah. But what's all this black stuff? See all the black stuff? And it's, it's associated with the canals. Some of it, a lot of it's inside the canals. And so when we look at the literature, they call it infill. They say that's washed in from the outside. But these bone canals are so tiny, you need a microscope to see them. You can make out some of them, particularly on the horn, but generally these are microscopic. So the amount of pressure that it would take to push infill or sand from the the dirt through and into the middle of the bone would be enormous. It would fracture the bone, in my estimation. So... I never bought the infill argument. I always thought, well, maybe this has something to do with blood. Now I'm at the point where I stand and say, that's a blood clot. But I have to prove it to you now, don't I? So if we magnify, let's say we magnify one of these Haversian canals, one of these blood canals, and we look at the clots, you can see how full and thick they are. Some of them don't even have openings in the center they are so full. And... and uh, You can see other structure. You can see lines in here. You can see lines around the Haversian Canal. You can see all these dots. What are all those dots, folks? Those are the cells. They're still there, right? So we see the bone. We see the cells. We see the canals. And they're occluded. They're completely blocked. And I'm saying, that's a blood clot. But i got to prove it to you. So we had to think about this. You remember Moses, when he went up on the mountain to be with God? He spent time with God. God is light. Uh, he dwells in unapproachable light, right? Uh, so he must have been pumping a lot of light into Moses because he came down from the mountain. And what did the Jews say to him? Moses, cover your, your face. Remember? He had to wear a veil. Why? He was glowing. He was auto-fluorescing. That's what we call it, autofluorescence. And so Iron has that property. Your skin has that property. I can hit you with a specific wavelength of light and you'll glow another color. That's called autofluorescence. It's the proteins that are doing that. But iron does that also. And we we looked in the, into the literature and it indicated several uh, wavelengths that we could use. They were all in the UV. So, okay. So, we built a special microscope that uses only UV. We wore uh, orange glasses to protect ourselves. And we hit it with UV. We turned out the bottom light, which is coming through now, turned, out the, turned on the UV light, and look at that. Look at the iron glowing. That's iron saying, I'm here. This is all native iron. But notice, it never left the canals. It never went out into the bone. It stayed clotted in the canals. And uh, we've repeated this experiment over and over. I think we have nine individuals now that have shown clots. Just about everything we dig out of the ground. So that's a pretty impressive way to show that the iron stayed in the canal. So we published, I think, four or five papers now on clots in different individuals. You can see these sharp lines of demarcation. You see all these little crystals in here. And this crystallized, and and look at the crystalline shapes. It's all crystallized. But we showed this to a pathologist, and he started identifying different proteins in here visually. So, you know, I don't have the expertise to do that. I'm a microscopist. But we're hearing from from people who are saying, we're recognizing things that we see uh, in humans. So, we found a term in the medical literature called disseminated intravascular coagulation. Disseminated intravascular coagulation. It's clotting. It's sudden clotting. You may have heard of clotting during COVID. Yeah? You heard about that. Now they're doing autopsies on a lot of the patients who died from COVID. And they have very long clots in them, 18, 20 inches in their vessels. So they clotted during uh, their exposure to COVID and when they were intubated in the uh, uh, ICU. And, um, and the term is disseminated intravascular coagulation, which is uh, indicated by trauma, heavy trauma can cause it even worry. Uh, If you experience extreme worry, it can cause it. But certainly in drowning. In drowning. Uh, The literature says that if you die from drowning and you're not able to be resuscitated, you stayed clotted. So if the animals drowned, if these animals drowned, which we believe they did in Noah's flood, uh, their bodies would have rotted away and all that clotting, but the bones are still clotted. And even though we shave these things down these things down into thin sections with diamond wheels and diamond paste, all that vibration shaking still doesn't dislodge them. So it's astonishing to me that these are in place, But then I think about Job 40. You know Have you considered behemoth? Aren't his bones like brass? Aren't they like iron? And they are. God bragged the truth about their bones long before anybody found out there were clots in them. So it's it, to, to us, it's an indication of the method of death. It shows that they clearly died by drowning. Now, this little picture shows the difference between a steel pin, which is in the microscope, and the iron clot. It's denser than the steel pin is. Um, that's just another confirmation of the metal that's there. Well, let's go really deep. Let's forget about the Cretaceous. That's 68 million years old, according to their time frame. Let's go into 300, 290 million years on. Now, now think about these numbers that we throw around. 68 million years. If you could live a thousand years, first of all, would you? Not here, certainly, right? <laughs> Maybe on the moon. <laughs> but let's say the Lord comes to you and He says, You're gonna live a thousand years. I'll be with you, I'll protect you, I'll take care of you. I know it's gonna be hard. You can do it. The end of the thousand years come, and you're like, Yes, we're done. And God says, not so fast. Let's do it again. In fact, let's do it another 68,000 times. That's the number we're talking about. If you had to live a 1,000-year lifetime, you had to do that 68,000 times in a row. It's monstrous these ages. This guy is in 290 million years old. This was in Oklahoma. It's called the Permian Basin. And this was right on the surface. Here's a femur from Dimetrodon. We have it on the table. So we processed uh, the middle of this bone, and we have the two ends over there on the table. And uh, so this was published in 22. And there is a Haversian canal. You can see the rings around it. Here's a clot. But notice the depth. The red arrow is pointing to the depth. Now, remember, these are only 40 microns thin, but you can see the depth here as this is going down the canal. And you can see all the cells. How can the cells still be there? if this is that old, we think this was all one event, one event, and you're going to see some pictures of nerves from this era that have better preservation than the ones I just showed you, which are supposedly most young, uh, even younger. So there it is just with the UV, uh, all the bone surface and everything really goes away. You can tell the iron did not leak out into the bone, and and so there's this preservation mechanism that has been suggested by the evolutionist and it's called iron preservation if you heard of that the iron preserves the tissue but if the iron is still in the in the canal what's preserving all the tissue out here in the bone you see it wasn't available to do that work and so i think we have a really good answer uh, for the iron preservation theory now people say to me what's preserving it As a soft tissue processing expert who is publications galore in this area, I have no idea other than God because he bragged about them. So he knew about them already. Uh, This is another beautiful um, canal. It's an oval canal. I think this is in Rib. And here's the clot in Brightfield when you hit it with light from above. And look at the polishing marks in the metal. It's a malleable metal. So, again, another confirmation This was also in 2022. We went to find Nanotyrannus lens Uh, It bears the term Tyrannus, so you think of Tyrannosaurus rex, right? And so there's two hot schools of thought on this guy. It's a very controversial dinosaur, and we knew that the dig had it. That's why we went after it, because we thought, we'll tie our kite to that controversy and maybe gain some converts. So we collected a, a lot of specimens. And uh, we did ultraviolet, all ultra of fluorescence again, and you can see the blood clots. So this was just, this was I think at the end of last year, November. So uh, here are some of the bones that we collected. This is the radius, it's a limb bone. Here's a beautiful canal, here it is with the iron in it. So the the iron shows up in the clots over and over. Here's a digit, a little phalanx, a, did, uh, a manis digit, and it had uh, iron in it. Uh, here is a we had to call it a post cranial element, post cranial element because we couldn't identify it fully. But that's an accepted term. Probably a limb bone shattered, sheared away. That's the way we found it in the soil. Beautiful clots inside of that one. This was a post cranial vertebra, probably a tail vertebra from Nanotyrannus. Beautiful clot in there, uh, glows beautifully. Uh, ulna another limb bone, beautiful clots in it, everything was positive, even the claw uh, even the claw was positive for clots, but the tooth was not the tooth was not, and we know it's a good thing we only have one strand to pull those things out because it hurts, but because there's only one vascular strand in the tooth, it wasn't widespread throughout the tooth, but uh, this this tooth. Uh, told us that we were at the right place for nanotyrannus because this is that tooth. It's a double serrated tooth and they're highly prized. Uh, These can go for $1,200 a tooth. Um, And so we destroy everything though. So nobody gets to have it. Um, This was just reported in this paper in in, uh, November of 1992. This is a nematode. This was living at the time we collected the bone because we put our bones in fixative at the dig. So anything that's in the bone, we take it right out of the ground, put it into the fixative, and it arrests any living thing inside the bone. And here's a nematode. And you can see all the structure in here that was preserved because we put it in the fixative, it got frozen, then we infiltrated it with plastic and thin-sectioned it, and there it is. Now... I don't know if you remember this picture that I showed you a second ago way back here a long second ago. Here it is. Remember that picture, right? Well, what I didn't do at the beginning was count the nematodes, one, two, three, four. You didn't see them did you five, six, seven, eight, nine, I don't know, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eight. they're loaded. With nematodes. Now, nematodes are soil worms that are highly voracious. They're really voracious. If there's no food source, they will eat their young first and then each other. They're cannibalistic. And so, why are they in the bone? If they're so hungry and they need so much food, why are they in the bone? They did a study where they studied all the microorganisms in a dinosaur bone and in the soil around it. And there was many more microbes inside the bone than in the soil. Why are they leaving the soil to go into the bone? It's because there's fresh protein in there. There's food in there. And they're supporting entire uh, entire populations in there. And so this was the picture, a blow-up of that worm in Nanotyrannus. I'm sorry, in, in Triceratops. But remember this picture? There's one right there. See that nematode? So this is published now. Again, this is world first. We're able to say this is a world first discovery. We're trying to figure out how to coax them out of the bone. And so (laughs) we're trying to invent experiments that would coax... Can you imagine a video of worms crawling out of a dinosaur bone? What that would do to the world? I talked about the nerves from the Permian. And this is a perfect example. And this was just published... uh, I think it was January of 22. You see the epinurium and perinurium crosshatch pattern in there. This is supposed to be 300 million years old, but it looks so much better than the tricerat or the yeah the triceratops, doesn't it? And this is from tiny limb bones um, uh, from what they call the earliest tetrapods on the planet, the earliest four legged creatures on the planet back 290 million years ago, and yet they have better preservation. In fact, we're finding lipids. See the lipid droplets? Those all came out of this nerve. So this has been published. But I have a better picture on the other presentation. I actually have a nerve uh, that has liquid droplets going in a line straight up to the surface. <laughs> so it's astonishing to us, the things that we're finding. Um, there's, we're just scratching the surface. There's so much more work to do. And uh, we invite you to come and participate. We want to train young people to do this because if this stuff is real, then the earth cannot possibly be the age that they're claiming it is. It has to be young. This stuff doesn't uh, stick around. It doesn't last. If the earth is young, the flood was real. This was all buried in one global event. That Cretaceous layer goes all the way around the earth. We're praying to dig the whole thing. Somebody has to. Uh, and people, if they do it, they don't do it for the right reason. So we're hoping to get out there and, and dig this whole uh, layer all around the earth. It means that the Garden of Eden was real. It means that you and I are brothers and sisters in the same family from the original couple. right? It means there's one race. There's one race. If I strip everything off your skeleton... The only thing I can tell about you from your skeleton is that you were male or female. I can't tell what color you were. All the time I hear the phrase, people that don't look like me. And I think, come on guys, two eyes, a nose, a mouth, two ears, bipedal, two hands. We look like each other. You might be cafe con leche with a little more leche. Yeah? Or with a little more cafe. And so... It's just melanin. We do look like each other because we're all related. There are there are no races. That's a lie. Do you think Cleveland can use this message, guys? That's a healing message, isn't it? Dinosaur Soft Tissue delivers that. I remember we were in an Avis van headed to the car park to get the car. And people learn not to ask me, How are you doing? Because he asked, the driver asked me, how you doing? We're doing great. We just came back from a dinosaur dig. Really? And then suddenly everybody, all the suits in the, in the, in the shuttle turned and looked because everybody wants to go on a dinosaur dig. And so I suddenly had the attention of everybody in the van. I thought, let's go for it. I said, we're digging dinosaur bones out of the ground. We dissolve them in a weak acid. They're full of soft tissue. Dinosaur soft tissue is real, and that means you are my brother in Adam. This guy was really dark. He almost drove off the road. Seriously. And then he pulled into the Avis lot and came to a jerky halt. So everybody was like this when he stopped the car, but they all got out. They didn't want to hear that anymore. But he turned around with his phone, and he said, Repeat everything you said just now into my phone. I made a brother that day. You see? This is a a, a healing message and one that we really need to take advantage of. People are shocked when they hear about dinosaur soft tissue. We generally in our travels say, do you have kids? You know, oh, yeah, i got a 10-year-old and a 14-year-old. Do they like dinosaurs? Oh, they love dinosaurs. Here's some free books. And now we're in a conversation with a stranger we've never talked to before. I can get to the gospel in about 30 seconds after that because they're open. That dinosaur soft tissue phrase has kind of, fractured their mind for a second. So I'm going to end. I'm sure everybody has tons of questions and uh, we'll hang around, but I think we got a couple of minutes yet, Pastor Mark, to do that. So thank you. God bless you. Thanks for coming tonight. You want to take questions? Yeah, would no? be happy to. Okay. All right. Who's got a question? There's one. Well, the carcass was buried with the bones in them, so the carcass had to be eaten first. And so, I don't know, uh, you look at the forensic literature and bodies can decompose or be, be deconstructed. Pretty quickly, a month or two, a lot of the soft tissue is already... Uh, taken away, maybe six months to a year tops for the outer body. Uh, they probably would have crawled into the bones from the canals uh, from that point. So, But it's, there's been enough food in there since they were buried to sustain them to this moment. Uh, so how old are they, class? That's what we're trying to figure out. But I tell people 10,000 years. Uh, 6,000 years can be a, a trigger point. For some folks they'll turn off right away so i'll tell them eight to ten thousand years if they really press me i'll say six thousand but i want to win friends and so uh, but no these things um they're they they would probably tear a body apart in about six months to a year and then they start on the bones but apparently if they've been there for four thousand years there's been enough food to sustain them up to now does that make sense I don't see how it can. Uh, why would they be in there? They, you know, I was, in, I was interacting with a guy on the internet the other day, and I said, worms don't take vacations. They don't go into a bone to take a vacation. They go in there for a purpose, to eat and raise young. And so there must be something drawing and keeping them in there. We think it's the proteins. Yeah, great question. Another question. Really? Who wants to be a microscopist? (laughs) Yay. I got a few. That's awesome. Well, thank you, guys. We'll hang around. Yes, you have a question? They congratulate us, interestingly, because we don't make it adversarial. We're looking for collaboration and cooperation. So we have a couple of forensic scientists who are Collaborate, or talking to us about collaborating, and we're anxious to move along that path. But we don't argue with people. The reason we decided to publish first is because we wanted to know what was there, we wanted to do it accurately and report it properly, and we wanted to occupy the high ground. You understand what I mean by that? We don't have to argue anymore because it's published. Their argument is with the editor in the journal, and boy, did they let them know it. Okay, They really let them know it. So these guys, for whatever reason, are hanging in with us. They're publishing almost everything. In fact, I'll tell you this. When this paper was being published, I was in communication with the editor of the journal. And I happened to mention we're in Minneapolis doing a a set of labs. Uh, And he wrote back instantly and said, you got to send me a paper on that. I thought, really? So I wrote this paper about the labs. Uh, one of the most encouraging things uh, is that we're drawing students into science at higher rates than they are with their programs, especially females. They have real trouble attracting females into science. There's a dearth of females for science right now. Our numbers are double their numbers in terms of the females that are coming into the lab. So that's really exciting. But I wrote it up. I, I, I stated purposely throughout the article this This material is abundant enough that we can do labs all over the country and never run out of material. I said that several times in the article. So they're not only going to publish it in July, they're publishing it at their national meeting and handing it out to 10,000 visitors. That's God doing that. So it's just so trippy. But most of them are either silent. We have had some criticisms, but we jump on it because I want my science to be right. And so if a criticism comes, we dig into the literature, we go back to our work to prove that we're actually finding what we say we're finding. So I'm stunned, to be honest with you. I think our approach being professional and being scientific and not being adversarial has really worked. And so pray for us because we're interfacing with people in universities that have significant pull. By the way, We just got invited the other day to go to a public school. Uh, Where is the public school? It's in North Middleburg. No. Yes, thank you. North Olmsted. That's astounding that we now get to go into a public school. All I'm going to do is present this presentation. It's strict science. They'll get it, and they'll ask questions. What does this have to do about the Bible? Glad you asked. But, um, no, it's it's just... uh, To me, it's amazing what God is doing, and uh, it's all him. We're just dedicated to being the best we can be, and he's using that to expand this. So, did you have a question? I saw your hand go like that. Yeah. Yes, sir. The biggest dinosaur uh, single bone that we found is an entire triceratops skull, and we found that last year. You know how mosquitoes come up out of the water when they grow and they their head sticks up? That's what it looked like, right? It looked like a mosquito coming up out of the ground with the horns sticking up, but they were sheared off. So they tell us that maybe the whole skeleton is under there. We're not sure yet. Also last year, Ruth found an Edmontosaurus, which is the duck-billed dinosaur. It's 17 feet long. They've uncovered a lot of it now. We're going back... This year to dig it. We have a piece of that vertebra over here on the table, just one little piece of it, and it's really heavy. You should pick that one up. So I would say the Triceratops skull is the biggest contiguous bone that we found in Montana at the Hell Creek. Yeah. Excellent question. Yes. Right now, our dig is scheduled for the week of May the 14th in Glendive, Montana. Uh, you would need to, to uh, I would recommend that you go to the, to the dig site website. It's called dailydinosaurdigs.com. And they're the folks, they're the home, homeschool Christian folks that own this 9,000 acres that Mary Schweitzer and everybody has dug on. And so... Uh, there are forms that you can download that you have to fill out, liability forms, and then you pay the dig operator a certain amount every day. Because of the numbers that are coming, I think we've got the total down to about hundred dollars a day, and and you can take away a lot of the shards. If you get big bones, you'll have to haggle for those because uh, they they sell those. They support their families. But come to Glendive on May the fourteenth. Uh, read their list of things to bring off of their website. Uh, and uh, there's a La Quinta there. There's a Holiday in there, maybe one other. And uh, But you'll have our text number. Text us. The dig is right near where the hotels are. And uh, But if you can't come this year, stay in touch with us because we try to go every year. So far, we've been going every year. So if you want to come on a dig, we'd love to have you. Yes. We haven't done labs in the public schools yet. We're hoping to do that. We get to speak to three periods on Thursday, tomorrow morning, to the to the public school. We're praying that we get to bring the labs in because we promoted a STEM content. I can't think of anything science than dinosaurs and microscopes. That's about as STEM-y as you can get, science, technology, engineering, math, right? That's what they're all clamoring for. And COVID destroyed our education system. I mean, it was bad before. I have a doctorate in education, and I was and well, I won't tell you my school. But I was embarrassed uh, at the, the little uh, scholarship that was offered in my program. And, um, and so, and I taught. I taught in college level for many years. I taught seventh and eighth grade science one year. That's all I could handle. I have deep respect for teachers who've taught for 20, 30 years at the middle school level. Wow, that was hard um, and very political. But um, now we, we want to take this to the, to the secular schools. We want to do labs there. Um, and hopefully the Lord is leading us along that path. So please pray. Please pray that we can take labs actually into the schools. That would be really cool. Great question. Yes. Not yet, but that's our goal. We're actually building a lending library of specimens. Uh, like I said, we're the only ones that fix our specimens at the site. Most paleontologists take that home and let it sit in a closet, and then they start working on it. But I think the superior preservation that we're seeing is a result of the process that we're using. Like I said, we're trying to advance science, but no. um, Yeah, I guess I had a senior moment and forgot your initial question. But we're hoping to have labs uh, partner with us. And so to that end, we're creating this lending library of specimens that they can check out and look at and learn from us and then maybe collaborations will result as a as a as a result. So I hope so. Uh, that's our goal. Yeah. Yes. Yes. They go out. Mary Schweitzer reviews our work, and I'm glad she does because I don't want to be wrong. If I'm wrong, I want to know it right away so I can be corrected, correct myself. But so far, papers have been published referencing our work, and they kind of dance around the claws. They kind of dance around the nerves, and they haven't mounted a really strong critique against it yet, which is fine. I welcome that because, again, we want our science to be really sound. So hopefully the Lord will allow us to do this and build these, but it's difficult. The first time I spoke at the Microscopy Site of America meeting, I presented cells, just cells. And a, a, a woman researcher from Spain was sitting she was from a university in Spain, sitting on the front row. And when I said thank you and put the microphone down, she jumped up and came up to me and said, I have to work with you. Your cells look alive. We have to try to culture these. And I'm like, great, here's my card. She started to pull out hers, and then somebody walked up and said, he's a creationist. She took her card back and walked away. So that's, that's disappointing because look how excited she was just looking at the work, just seeing the visual pictures. So we pray for that. We, we pray for collaboration, and the people will, uh, will bury their biases and, and just find out what this really is. Yeah. Yes, sir. I know along the lines of growing a presentation, when you were dismissed from the post, when you discovered that material is stretching, it's like, they're like, uh-oh, this guy's going to be done. I think so. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, what they, they said was, I was given a permanent part-time appointment when uh, they uh, invited me to come to the university. They said, you're going to be perma- uh, part-time because we can only afford uh, 20 hours a week at the rate you get. And so, uh, but we'll make you permanent. So they vested me. I was fully vested in everything. The, the full the retirement program at California State University was amazing. And so that got taken away, but I was fully vested in everything. So they had to say, um, and they said, "Your your position was always temporary." We had all the documentation because you do discovery, and they're required to give you everything. They waited till about three weeks before trial, and then they dumped thirty thousand pages on us. And the lawyer said, "Go to work." So I didn't sleep for a week. I read 30,000 papers over about a week, and we found all these smoking guns. And so all we had had to do was present that to the judge. She made a ruling. She actually ruled that they violated my civil rights and that that would be a fact presented at trial and that we could go forward to trial. That's when they said, okay, let's talk. And uh, it was amazing. We were standing all day long in a courtroom with the judge in chambers, and we were on opposite sides of the courtroom, and at one point, the lawyers were screaming at each other, and just standing there, because they didn't want to pay out anything, but they ended up paying about 500 grand. Just to our side, their side got, their lawyers got a million and a half, because they were on the case for three solid years. So it was amazing. The whole thing was surreal, and the Lord worked through it all. It's just crazy. Yeah, great question. Anybody else? (laughs) All right, we'll hang around for a while. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yes. I wish I could hear you, dear, but I'm deaf. The fiercest one is the one at the very beginning, Nanotyrannus. This guy, they say he could run 60 miles an hour. And remember, he had those double-sided, sharp teeth, just like steak knives. That would be scary, don't you think? I do. But they're cool, aren't they? Yeah. (laughs) Good question. Anybody else? One more and then, yeah. I carry around a textbook from 1950, Principles of Geology. Textbook from 1950. The book is begins with: We know the Earth is 1.1 billion years old. Now, how is it You're laughing. They call it 6.5 billion years of age now. So it's aged six billion years in 50 years. Why? It's because the more they see design, and the long, the length it would take to produce that design. They have to stretch out the time to make it fit in. There's no other reason to introduce time. In fact, if we had time, I would talk about radiometric dating, which is full of flaws. I'll tell one little story. We send a lot of bones in, or did it one time, in for radiometric dating. Before you can send in a bone, you have to download forms from their website, or they will not accept your bone or your rock. The first question on the form is, guess what, class? How old is the bone? I'm sending you a bone to find out how old it is, and you're asking me how old it is? What layer was it from? What other fossils are associated with it? Yeah. Why? They don't get a date. You can't put a bone in a machine and hit a button and get a date. You get a range of dates. Because radiometric dating is based on some big assumptions. We don't have time. And I'd bore you. But they, they have to... Have you give them the date you expect, and then they confirm, yeah, that's the date we have. They wouldn't date the bone if I did that. Thank you.